when we signed the declaration for climate change 11 years ago, we had 11 years to change it, with five and six of them were already gone. So, do you know what I mean? It's like, we've got, still got five, we've only got five years left before, you know, we're probably too late, if we're not already, and a project takes five years. Yeah. So we've got one project left. Every single person working in construction has got one project left to change it all. Welcome to the Green Urbanist, a podcast for urbanists fighting climate change. I'm Ross. Today's episode is a conversation with Joe Morris. Yeah, hi, um, I'm Joe Morris of Morris & Company. I met Joe at Morris & Company's newly refurbished office in East London, um, and I got a tour of their uh, their space, uh, which contains lots of models of their different um, projects that they've done over the years, but also the space itself, their office, is um, sort of a, a microcosm of their practice in terms of circularity, reusing existing buildings, uh, and also this really interesting thing about the connection between food and urbanism, and they have this uh, vegan cafe restaurant uh, adjoining and sort of almost semi-part of their architectural practice space. Um, so really interesting and uh, basically, we walked around the ground floor of, of their office and he talked to me about their philosophy and their approach. And there was lots of models around, lots of material samples. And we got talking about, about we basically spoke about 10 different, <laughs> 10 different projects of theirs uh, in varying, varying degrees of detail. Um, I really wish I was like a YouTube vlogger for this episode because, you know, it would have been great to be able to follow Joe around and see what I saw while I was there. Uh, but the next best thing is on my Substack blog. I have a companion post to this and I've included images and links to all the projects we talk about, as well as images that I took on the day of their office space. Um, so I think this episode, more than any other I've done, really benefits from that visual component. You'll still get a lot out of it if you just listen. Maybe you're, you're, you're on... Uh, in the car or you're uh, you're cooking or something you can't uh, look at it but when you get a chance just hit the link in the episode description which will bring you to the the companion blog post and uh, have a look through some of their fantastic work um, and some of the beautiful visuals there we're here in your fantastic new office in um uh, Hackney. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're down on the ground floor, which is a sort, sort of multi-purpose space. Can you just tell us, describe where we're standing and what the purpose of this is? Yeah, so, um, yeah, we, we moved in here um, about six or seven months ago with a vision to kind of dispel the kind of mystique, I suppose, that sort of architecture and development sort of seems to have for, I guess, the community as it were so it's a sort of completely open ground floor space as you can see we've got you know movable screens fixed screens we've got projectors we've got sound we've got mics and so forth and this really is a a place where we would envisage and allow people to come and to um, present themselves to other people to ourselves for us to present to them Mm. uh, for there to be exhibitions and launches and events and all sorts of things all really geared around the kind of a global conversation, um, which is very much a sort of planet-centric one, or a social kind of, you know, sort of about sort of social representation and responsibility. So really sort of driving those kind of, you know, the kind of ESG, I suppose, through this space. Um, as you can see, we've got two massive windows, one with our models. The other one did have our models. That was moved out to make way for uh, the Beyond, Beyond the Box uh, People's Pavilion um, exhibition, which is a number of uh, schemes which have been designed by um, you know, young kids and um, uh, people at school who have an ambition to kind of move through the gears and sort of you know move into construction. So they've been paired with amazing people like Arup and John Thomas uh, Architects and people like that and um, HTA. Um, so we've been sort of you know um, honoured really to be able to sort of put that in the space and beyond the box are cohabiting with us, which is also a part of what we were trying to do, which is to have a space which is more than just us. You know, we're really interested in um, the moments of kind of chance encounter and serendipity as a means to, mm. I suppose, new, learn new things and to enrich our, our, our sort of, you know, office scape, yeah. as it were. So that's all quite important. Um, and it really is that, that visual, physic- it's kind of quite physical, but also visual connection between what we do in here and what it feels like to be out on the street. And we get a lot of interaction, a lot of people stopping and staring and looking at the models and looking in. And, you know, in these meetings, we're often doing quite sensitive 
uh, meetings. You know, there's a lot of kind of you know client-focused presentations, a lot of you know stressful um, uh, moments where, and someone just come and wave at the window, and it's sort of <laughs> it's a complete kind of uh, um, sort of uh, uh, breaker of ice, as it were, uh, in those situations, which has been quite good. Um, and yeah, and it's sort of what's actually interesting as we started to go now. More and more people are sort of coming forward and are, are interested in us being able to host events here as well. But as we, you know, we've got the restaurant next door. Um, and we sort of set the restaurant up. Um, uh, it's only been open about four weeks, and that's been a sort of, you know, came, definitely came after this. But as you can see, we've got a big hole in the staircase that you can sort of see through a sort of glazed connection and then a big uh, door there. So the idea being that, you know, members of the public can walk into the restaurant and then can sort of flow through into our space. We can flow into their space. There's a courtyard out in the back, which we're going to be working on during the summer. So this whole ground floor then becomes mm-hmm. a sort of not quite sure whether or not you're in an architect space, an exhibition space, a restaurant, a court, yeah. you know, sort of thing. So again, again, just, um, you know, creating opportunities for, for sort of difference and, and interface. Well, I had, I had that experience when I showed up, you know, 20 minutes ago, uh, because I was thinking, where's the reception? <laughs> I was like, there's usually a desk with someone yeah. behind it at these kind yeah. of places. And then I went in through the, through the cafe and I found yeah. you. And I thought that's yeah. actually a really nice interface. There's sort yeah. of a, a semi-public space before you get in. <clears throat> Yeah, the, yeah. The I mean, we wanted to kind of yeah move away from a kind of person sitting on a on a reception desk and isolated. So actually, all of our team are on the first floor above us. So and again, that's where we're sort of sharing other space. But I think you know we, we're trying not to have a kind of I suppose corporate identity here, if you know what I mean. So it's kind of really chilled and super relaxed. And again, you can just you find your way in some means, and it's like you know where am I? And then maybe it's all about inquiry and just looking at the things that we've got, looking at the models and that sort of thing. Yeah. Fantastic. Do you want, so this is obviously an existing building that's been refurbished. Yeah, existing building. <clears throat> we, um, all the windows are all here. So the space was sort of here. Yeah. Good bones, as it were. Yeah. Um, it was, um, the top floor is um, occupied by the landlord. So it was extended on the upper levels by a company called Platform 5, who are, again, a local, local architect, a sort of friend, um, a guy called Patrick that I know there. And um, so they're a kind of international distributor of um, wholesale sort of fashion. I think they're based in Vietnam. Um, they come in often, but they're always posted up there. We have a, um, a, a building manager who we see all the time. Um, but this space, in some ways, was a sort of very forgotten kind of part of that. So they'd moved up into that space. And this was sort of had meanwhile activity. There was a fashion student in here at the time or a startup sort of fashion business um, in this space. But we saw massive amounts of opportunity here to really, really, really connect kind of our, our kind of uh, program back to the street. So walls, we removed a load of walls here. We stripped everything out. Um, we cut a hole in the floor here to put a new staircase down into the basement. And the basement was a space that hadn't seen the day of light for like a century, if ever, uh, once the kind of the floor had gone in. And then we cut a staircase uh, here to connect to the first floor. And the idea being that the two, the two staircases are intentionally separated so that actually what you need to do, if you're going to come up or down, you need to step into the space. Okay. I think it's quite important. So if, we, if you want a little wander down here. So again, light and activity and sort of depth. And then um, we're still in the kind of hybrid situation where, you know, I think the big challenge is getting people in still. Yeah. So even though, you know, we've, put, we've invested a lot in the building, people are still... You know, they've been liberated from the normal sort of shackles. So this is a, um, you know, fully liberated cloud-based system upstairs, okay. which means that you can work on an iPhone on a street corner and sort of, you know, run around Revit. So, you know, why mm-hmm. would I come in sort of thing? So we tr- it's a sort of, it's a kind of trying to, you know, capture two, two ends of a potential way in which people could work. So, you know, we want you to come here to be, when you come in, it's about sort of creative exchange uh, and investing in, you know, kind of craft if it's about kind of engineering, say, or it's about, you know, admin or a bit of kind of, you know, business-based homework, you sort of can do that at home sort of yeah. thing. So this space is a, um, a shade. Light spills down. We've got, um, this would be, um, you know, big, this would be, this is a, a photography studio. We've got kind of archive um, material. We're currently producing a kind of in-house kind of QR code system so that every single sample has a story to tell. So you'd be able to pick it up and scan it. And then you'd be able to kind of see, you know, where we've used it before, where we've got it, when it was last used, yeah. why you shouldn't or should use it, and if you're going to use it, the kind of lessons that we would learn <laughs> from it sort okay. of thing. So that's quite good. So that's quite, that, this would be an ongoing thing. So <clears throat> rather than being an exhibition, it's kind of a working space. And then through there, we've got um, model-making lab, 
We've got CNC, you know, machines. We've got laser cutters, printers, and all sorts of things. Plus scalpels, card, and glue, sort of thing. So it's sort of, you know, low-tech um, sort of space. But again, trying to, I guess, this space, trying for it to be kind of a bit dirty, a bit less pure, a little less polished, and so people can, you know, chuck things on the floor. You know, it's a bit of a mess, and that's inten- intentional as well. And and I think for people who you know, have a look at the, the blog post because I'll put up pictures of the models and that kind of thing and there is just these beautiful models all around and it's actually quite an inspiring place to be in, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've always done it. I think when we were in our old place over in um, Underwood Street, which is near um, uh, Old Street, sort of Clarkmill area, we had the same view there that rather than thinking of the models as like exhibition pieces, mm. actually we just want people to be, be immersed in it so you sort of smell it and taste it and mm. see it all the time that this is... It's very much a kind of three-dimensional uh, problem-solving game that we're in. So it's not about CGIs, it's not about glossy images, it's about making stuff and seeing it and, and really sensing it. And, and it's the same, you know, like yourself and other visitors come in, they sort of, it's instantly visible. It's a thing that you're in. This is a kind of it's an architect who, who, who is inspired by kind of, you know, three-dimensional form and shapes and materials and making as a means to do and to yeah. test and to solve problems. Can we have a quick look at your material yeah, library? Sure. And I think, I mean, just looking at your, your catalogue of work, obviously materiality seems really important yeah, to you. Yeah. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, this one, for example, if we talk about pink, yeah. you know, we do, we, do, <laughs> we do a lot of pink stuff. Um, so, you know, we've got a kind of R7 building, which actually this is a model of at the moment. So that's, you know, this is a, um, a kind of card model. We, you know, this was made like, well, what would it be now? About 12 years ago, someone made this. Um, I think Adam made it actually, who, who went on to do his own thing, Adam Etworth. And it's, um, you know, it's made of bits of card, and we basically sprayed it with. Um, back in the day, before we knew better, it's a kind of it's a car spray from Halfords. <laughs> and actually, what well, interestingly, it was it was a code at the time for something. We weren't sure whether it was a metal or concrete or steel or whatever. And um, in the end, it kind of ended up morphing, just really kind of naturally into a kind of an, anod- an anodized aluminium system. And then we matched the material to the colour of this model. Oh, right. So it's sort of, it's like pure chance that we ended up with that particular cut, those two pinks, thing. because they came from uh, non-construction-based yes. um, uh, sources. Um, I think we do, I think pink is a whole thing about, you know, if I hold that up, <clears throat> this is our kind of Camden Hotel, which is under construction. So for me, it kind of, you know, if I was to dig a hole in the ground and lift this out, you'd see... You wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't not expect to see something like this, the colour of clay, I guess. Yes, yes. So kind of pink has always represented the ground for, in, in my head or the, the soil um, or the earth. Mm. And gradually, you know, and, and solidity and heaviness, hence the reason why we tend to use these sorts of materials. We, we, we defined ourselves um, when we relaunched as Morrison Company um, several years ago as a practice in a, under a change of state. So before, we've been Doug and Morris Architects for 15 years. Then through that change of state, it's like an evolution and a transition. We became Morrison Company, but we're also interested in this idea that materials have a change of state. So, you know, here it's the same material, cast, but depending on what you do to the surface, the material mm. changes. So it's all about that idea that there's an inherent substance, a kind of core, which is the same, and there's a sort of these kind of treatments that you can apply to something in order to generate yeah. um, articulation. So, so there's a, you've got a, you've got a, a piece of stone here that yeah. is half sandblasted and half yeah. says acid etched acid etched and sandblasted yeah yeah or you know there's all sorts of things you can bead blast you use metal you know metal ball bearings and whatever or little sort of pyramids and whatever so you yeah you're etching it and i guess then it's a conversation once you once you realize that there's something inside this thing that you're casting then you know it opens up doesn't yeah. it you've got a whole range of then you're having a conversation not just about the pigmentation but about what the pigmented cement is holding and the aggregate so you know that black one you know you could say that it's the same material say as this one here you know the same the same pinks but actually it's the aggregate changes everything mm. so you, it's a bit like when you think about a, um, a brick facade it's not just the brick it's the it's the cement yeah. you know it's it's all of that which sort of changes everything um the mortar has a kind of massively profound impact yeah. on it as well so yeah we're kind of yeah we're constantly playing with all of it and then you know huntingdon which is this one and this one, and these ones over here. This one is um, a project that we've got on um, next to the T building um, on Bethnal Green Road, opposite Shoreditch Station, yeah. which is a big 
hewn cast brick and stone pink building really really heavy uh you know we're thinking of that of you know several hundred years worth of it's going to be there for for a long time um and um yeah also lots of reddish pinkish tones so again you so and you know it's also you know a lot of london streetscapes and grain the victorian kind of buildings are all made of this sort of incredibly rich red um so again the reds in the in the stone and in the and the brick are kind of you know sort of a favored material it strikes me this this whole palette we're looking at is very biophilic in a sense i'm not seeing very many sort of high tech or very polished yeah there's nothing i mean we we like to think of ourselves as as a as a practice that doesn't really you know we're not really into what's the the terminology sort of gilding the lily (laughs) do you know it's sort of don't see the point of kind of making something x trying to find some trying to basically specify and design something which is excessive and precious and, you know, kind of frivolous, as it were. Well, I think we're we're interested in... We're obviously interested in experience and we're interested in the environment, not from a kind of planet side first, but sort of the experience, the sort of sense of being Mm. in something. So this has all got personality. This has all got narrative. But I think we're really kind of... We have this really hyper-rational approach to things and the narrative is really narrow, I think. Mm. So which kind of really has a really purposeful narrative and a lot of it's to do with being lean and mean, efficient. Um, when I say mean, I'm talking about stripping it right back <clears throat> to a kind of bare essence, and then the idea of a building as a chassis that allows for you know all the things which we know are important, durable kind of flexibility over time. So don't put anything in because someone's going to rip it back out again. Okay. Uh, in fact, actually, these light fittings that we've got here, these were all from uh, an AHMM strip out of a project in um, Broadgate. Okay. So that was they'd been put in. Um, by you know by the the, the, the developer and contractor uh, some five years previously, and then when HMM came in to do the fit out, they're ripping them all out. We're like, we'll take the lot. <laughs> so all these fittings are coming from another office building around the corner, and I guess that whole circular thing Brilliant. is yeah. actually kind of really you know really evident. All these shelves have come from our old office. This this thing here, which has got no glue, uh, grooves or um, sorry screws or glue, mm. uh, comes from a, a model making workshop over in West London. And they were closing. They said, you know, come and get them. So we just bought a load, job lot of them for a hundred quid. You know, shell everything. You know, it's all basically continuously travelling with us. This this was a kitchen <clears throat> in our old office. All of this, you can see all the all the woodwork on here. If I could turn the light on, you'd see it. But what you can't make out here is that it's an entire patchwork of bits of. MDF, which have travelled with us over time, yeah, so yeah, we're just yeah. kind of continuously kind of reappropriating. So there's nothing in this workshop is new. It's all it's all been with us for like 15 yeah. years, and we're just again chopping it and moving it about, which I think is great. And we know the whole point of it is that that becomes an aesthetic. You, yeah. you see that aesthetic. So again, rather than trying to over polish it, in fact, we didn't even draw the joints. You sort of say to the contractor, you just make up <laughs> your own work. thing, make it make it work. There's <laughs> the materials. All these sorts of things. I think that should go there, and I think you should use these here. And I think it's great. I kind of love it down here. It's a kind of brilliant sort of, you know, man-made, no architect involved sort of thing, which is great. It's, yeah, I think once, as you said, like once you let go of that need for a really polished aesthetic, it opens up all these opportunities for for that sort of urban mining thing of saying, this building here doesn't need it anymore, we'll put it in ours, we don't care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me show you the, um, if I could show you next door, because I think there's another, there's a big story there. So... Going back to this idea of um, the, the, the need to get people in um, and, you know, that, that whole conversation about sort of circularity, um, shepherding and looking up, and, you know, the, the husbandry of materials, whatever the terminology is, it's like looking after stuff, valuing everything. Every decision has a, an, an impact, that kind of, kind of chaos and butterfly theory that, you know, no matter how small, there is an impact somewhere. Um, if you really are in that mindset, then kind of you have to be kind of super, super sort of careful about those decisions and really meaningful and they're really purposeful at this point we moved into the cafe restaurant space that adjoins the office so next door um every single move that we've made has gone through that sort of lens that try not to buy anything new if it's new then it comes from a circular source uh Mm. and it's regenerative so all of the chairs Mm. they're all either urkel or an old school chair all of them about fifth hand some of them, some of them we've owned for our time. Some of them have come from other um, other spaces that we've had. Um, you know, these are mine. I think some of Ellie's grandma's chairs. It might be these ones are sort of Ellie's grandma's chairs, for example. Um, the tabletops are a product called Forezzo, so it's a kind of no toxin resin, or you know, a, 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 um, it's kind of an, an eco resin, 
holding timber waste from the wood industry, which is a kind of really beautiful uh, material. So it's like terrazzo, but made of, made of timber. All of the wood is um, from a coppiced um, woodland out in Devon. So each one of these basically comes from a tree, which is going through continuously in a kind of super biodiverse forest and woodland being kind of continuously kind of managed. So we've got walnut, we've got cherry, we've got oak and ash. Um, the tables in here are the same. That sort of thing is pretty cool, I think. This sort of um, a light fitting, which is basically from a sort of felled um, a, a tree, which is kind of really beautiful. These things here, they're a little bit sort of, I suppose, um, Lord of the Rings, but again, kind of quite like the fact that they are. Um, you know, everything, that, all this sort of stuff was already here, so again, not really doing anything with too much. Um, this was an old table, so it was a table that had already a kind of... Um, a linoleum top and we've just cut them all up and used them again so sort of reappropriating those things so again the, the, the brickwork was originally all covered with plaster so we had a, a, a chap called Igor who was this amazing guy with a spoon chipped all the plaster <laughs> off for over two weeks to get us back to the to the essence of this building which is this incredible kind of you know 700 mil thick brick load-bearing structure um, and so forth so yeah so it's so the whole this whole space these are all these tiles um, are from a, a Ketley from a, a yard up in Market Harbour and um, their story is that they're all seconds so um, the guy that um, sort of offered them to me to take them as a sort of job lot you know from pretty much next to nothing they said look they're all sort of lying around um, and um, they're all seconds and they've been there for years and years and years we've got hundreds of thousands of them how many do you need I said I reckon we need about 5,000 so um, we've got this clad in it we've got the back wall we've got a step over there and actually there's a load more that have now gone to one of my colleagues house who she, now she's now cladding a uh, kitchen floor or something as well so again that story and then all of the all of the sort of the legs and so forth they're all made of FSC rated sort of timber that you can get from B&Q for example so again super low tech playful kind of imaginative um, uh, and so forth incredible amount of thought has just gone into this one space yeah. and I presume that ethos follows through the, the rest through, of the yeah. building yeah. yeah it does yeah yeah everywhere we now move back to the main ground floor space of their office which is full of models of their projects and we talk a bit more about some of their projects definitely have a look at the blog post that has visuals of all of these projects in it and really help you understand what we're talking about here so um the Blossom Street at the moment this is a um it's one of those projects where I don't know, it's, you know why we've been selected. So it's, it's a project with British land. Um, it's in Norton Folgate. Um, so it's sort of part of a bit of London, which is probably one of the last few remaining kind of strongholds of a sort of Georgian streetscape. Um, there's a kind of really embedded local community in there of living in these incredible um, sort of Georgian streets. And we were commissioned by British landers along with, um, after AH, so AH member the master planners, we were then selected for this corner plot DSDHA are looking at the uh, the Water Poet pub. Um, Stanton Williams are doing uh, one of the projects there. And then East are kind of stitching the entire sort of ground plane together. Yeah. And our particular plot was um, quite small. Um, if I take away this thing here, then effectively all this is existing. So we have a kind of row of four, four buildings, um, sort of Queen Anne, sort of Victorian uh, uh, terrace building with a kind of mansard roof. We have one of the long, oldest remaining bits of Georgian streetscape, which is this particular building, um, which was like a really, really important, really kind of con- um, a contentious building that was kind of, at some points it was out, and then we, you know, there was a sort of conversation about how important it was, so it remained. And then on the corner here, we're replacing a building which was constructed in the 1930s okay. and, and rebuilding. And then what we're effectively getting here is a floor plate which runs right the way through and all the way down the corner. So you end up with three eras in one floor which I think is really really beautiful this project is all about restoration so we've got a team of you know we've got we've got um, Spaniards on our team we've got um, Italians in our group we've got English we've got Irish you know there's a broad spectrum of of people looking at a building which was constructed you know 100 and something years ago and being absolutely utterly kind of obsessed by every single brick on this building so it's like really and again it's really hard to sort of get the kind of message across but every single part of this building has had to undergo some form of restoration Mm, so there's been a lot of conversation about what would the building have looked like how would it have at what point was which bit of history are we interested in because obviously buildings kind of patinate over time don't they there's that palimpsest of of, of, of occupation and change and material you know 
upgrades and so forth, you know, are they the original windows? Is that the original stone? Was that brick always there? Yeah. And I think something that sort of come out of that, which is, again, thinking about the value of materials, that all of it is relevant. So every single part of it is history. There is no... History is history. There's no better or worse history. It's all history. It's all part of the same story. So the building has evolved, and we've managed to use that sort of narrative to sort of guide, guide us through the process about what colour should a mortar be, what kind of brick should it be. Should it be a tinted brick? Should it be a yellow brick? Should it be tuck-pointed? Should we leave everything? Should we repair it? When we repair it, should, should we see the repairs and so forth? And I think um, British Land are being very bold particularly on this building, I think, because it's quite a small building but quite an important part of that story. Um, and then on the corner, we've got, you know, it's a much more contemporary, more radical um, sort of uh, large-format window um, system. But actually on the side, you can see it kind of... It tucks back into a sort of Georgian rhythm. Yeah. So, again, it's sort of back into the street. So we are effectively a kind of gateway building into, our, into the master plan. You said there was a 1930s building there yep. previously. Yep. What was the thinking behind, I suppose, or, or were you able to use any of the materials, or what, what happened with that that I had to go? It was, it's one of those things where, it's a bit like, you know, a bit like this building as well, where you're absolutely aware of the value of found conditions. So I think, you know, what, what, what needs to stay, yeah. what ultimately needs to go. And I think the, the issues here were, the, you know, a lot of this conversation is about end product and who's going to be using it yeah. sort of thing so this is literally opposite here and down the road you've got city of london these got massive floor plates and then as you go further north you've got t building and then you go into the heartland of kind of hackney and they could become smaller so you're trying to all british land and the team are trying to find a kind of sweet spot on floor plate sizes so this is subdivis- subdivisible but in order to make it work potentially as a single occupier, which is still an option, yeah. we had to, there have to be certain adjustments in floor plate. So, you know, we were able to move these up and down uh, slightly. The timber, so all the timber was dry rot, wet rot, everything falling to pieces, yeah. brickwork falling, cracks everywhere. So <laughs> it was like rotten in. So we rebuilt it in painstakingly. We've rebuilt yeah. the roof painstakingly. But this building that was built in the 30s just had so, so little going for it mm. in the round... Um, and having in this courtyard there's a lot of retained structures so little in the round and and it didn't really work in terms of the floor levels to make this connection so it's kind of had it was one that was sacrificed in the the sort of round as it were and it's it's, I suppose thinking on the master plan level sacrificing that building means you could have saved these other historic buildings and use them in a much better way yeah yeah, exactly exactly Exactly. And then directly below us is um, Featherstone Building for um, uh, Derwent London. So this one, a similar sort of thing. There, was, um, there, was a, there were buildings on the site um, before we started. They were already sort of demolished um, as, as part of a kind of, uh, I suppose, a reckoning for the project. It was, it was two, um, two separate sites. So we've got site one and site two. Actually, the two buildings were on the site were, broadly speaking, the same height as this. Okay. But the floor plates were didn't connect between them as well mm. and so again it's one of those where it's beyond a sort of conversation about circularity and materiality and, and, and the kind of you know a sort of a planet bias it's does it stack up and I guess that's the starting point and I think for you know Derwent are, are a very smart developer they'd done a number of analyses on this that sort of suggested that the market just could they the investment they were going to put into the project, unless they did something radical, wasn't going to pay back, so there's nothing they can do, and therefore it stays as it is, and it was something they owned. So they decided to demolish what was there um, and put something back, which achieves a sort of net zero um, through, um, through kind of attitude to design, okay. off-site fabrication, that kind of reduction in waste. We've got cast-in cooling into the, into the concrete, so again, we're using a kind of super long lag time uh, but actually we stripped out all of the kind of air movement uh, um, sort of technology to use the concrete as a means to sort of temper the space as well which is which is quite good and then obviously we've got a load of sort of biophilic opportunities so all the terraces are all planted we've got bun hill which is it's a verdant landscape and then actually on this roof on the on the top of the second building there was um Part of the original uh, building had a, um, a roof-level plant enclosure. Mm. And again, sort of thinking through the circularity, we'd managed to engineer it so that the plant didn't need to sit on the roof anymore, which meant we could use the roof for amenity, yeah. which is obviously quite important. Yeah. But um, we'd already kind of constructed the framework for the plant and actually shrouded it as part of the contracts it was in. So um, Derwent said, look, what can we do with this thing? We said, well, let's keep everything that's there, and what we'll do is we'll slide a timber thing inside it, 
Okay. So it's really cool. It's like it's an old plant enclosure, which has been reinvented as this super precious timber object. Mm-hmm. And then we're on, at the moment we're just about to plant a kind of meadow which wraps all the way around this. So you mm-hmm. have this inverted landscape, biophilia, kind of biodiversity, and kind yeah. of bringing a bit of nature onto this roof level, which I think I'm really, really excited by. Are you starting to think about biodiversity net gain and that coming in later in the year? Yeah, I mean, we, we do it as a kind of um, standard. Every, mm-hmm. every chance that we get, we're trying to find a way of, of, of bringing it in and putting it in and, and designing it and then baking it into the scheme. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's good that it becomes a sort of regulation uh, rather than a, a kind of, you know, nice a simple nice to have because, you know, we, we believe in it. It's just getting developers who have felt basically the purse string holders <laughs> to kind of invest in it. And I think it's a, it's a great way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. yeah. Um, what else can I show you? This is um, Goldsmiths College. So this is next to Deptford Town Hall. Um, and it's a um, really cute little project to build a new community hub at the back of a number of um, sort of relatively dilapidated um, uh, Georgian and Victorian properties. So there's a terrace that runs along here. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a depth of town hall sort of sits here um, and um, as well as kind of converting and changing and adapting all these terraces a big part of the program was to develop, develop around 3,000 square foot of kind of community uh, infrastructure which this building is so it's a sort of it's a community hub for SMEs for creatives and startups and if you have a little look down there you can see that it's effectively it's a sort of timber frame building so all site off-site fabricated timber sort of bolted together sort of biodiverse roof Lots of light coming in in the right sorts of places. Um, building very much on our, um, the, our legacy that we've had with, say, um, Alfriston School, which is this one here. Um, just one over. So that's one of our you know, older projects, but it was a glue lamb um, or cross lamb um, timber frame structure for a swimming pool out in Buckinghamshire. That led on to this one, which is the um, Wilderness Restaurant, which again is a sort of barrel vaulted. Um, uh, prefabricated modular structure in a grid of four by four. So if you can, if you sort of look in the mirror, you can see the underside. So oh, again, that's so that's all a kind of timber frame wrapped in a kind of metal jacket with kind of timber inserts. There's tim- timber vaulted ceiling. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. So what we're doing ceiling. is we've got like a, um, we've got a glue lamb like that, and then yeah. we've got kind of stressed pressed plywood inserts that go into to make the the groin vaults. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. It's really interesting to see the. The, the lessons learned from yeah, each project the journey, and then yeah, informing absolutely. the next one. Is, so, is the first one you just showed us there in Deptford is very green. Is that accurate? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So that's, um, it's, uh, it's all going to be clad in uh, green. I think it's a sort of uh, metal jacket, that one, okay, um, yeah. with a lot of timber. Uh, this one was clad in, a, again, it's a sort of... It's also that whole conversation, is it, just about materials, what you... You know, I think there's a sort of thing on the inside that's definitely something you can do with timber. I think mm. it's an external thing where... It's all that whole story about kind of maintenance yeah. and kind of the de- it becomes a lot harder. And I think it's just finding striking the balance. I think between between the two. That one there, for example, the Seagull House. So that's up in North Hill, uh, the one next to R7, and it's a um, an extension to uh, one of Walter Seagull's buildings, oh, yeah. which we didn't build in the end, but we got planning for. And that is timber on the inside, timber on the outside, an entire repeated module of sort of staggered timber yeah. volumes. And I think, in some ways, what we've done there is to basically treat all the timber, but at the same time fix it in such a way that should it go, you can just unscrew it and put another one on, sort of gotcha. thing. So the, so the technology yeah. is like super, super, super basic. And Walter Siegel is the he did the modular housing. He did the modular housing. His whole thing, isn't it, about using kind of the lowest grade yeah. of, of any available materials and sort of bolting them together in a kind of you know really simple way. So we've kind of we've dived onto the spirit of that with that project. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's from sort of the 60s, isn't yes, it? Yes, that's so, right, I mean, yeah. that's, we've been, yeah. People have been thinking about this for a long time. It's only yeah, yeah. sort of coming into the mainstream now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, what else can I show you? Um, let's have a look at what, what, what are your thoughts on, I mean, as a practice, yeah. are you moving more away <coughs> from using steel and concrete and those quite carbon no, intensive No, no, not at all, actually. I think it's, um, it's everything which is a sort of, fitness for purpose I guess so um, and we know we can't build timber buildings so no one's building timber buildings so if we moved away from everything else so we're going to build from timber there's nothing gets built sort of thing so you know you can't build tall buildings uh, certainly housing in in timber 
Um, certainly not many people are going to do it. Yeah, Most, that's no, a regulation thing. No local authority is going to commission anyone yeah. to build up timber. So that's like you can't have timber anywhere, basically. Um, but in the office sector, the workplace sector, you can. Um, so this particular building, which is up in Mayfield, um, so this is for you and I and Landsec. We got consent for this um, about two or three years ago. So still a con an existing condition. We're just looking at it again in the context of a post-COVID world mm. to see if we've got the metrics and the kind of the balance on the kind of high ambition for the certification right. Okay. So effectively, let's go higher on everything. Um, but the spirit of it is still the same. And actually, what's really interesting about this building is it's sort of a, it's like a castellated steel structure with large format mass timber planks as a floor, uh, floor finish uh, um, between them. And that kind of creates a kind of abundant amount of flexibility, but also a, a super lowered uh, carbon uh, footprint. So we're just back in the saddle on that one. Um, we've been waiting for years and years and years and um, excited by it. And a, a big thing here is, you know, landscapes, uh, biophilia, loggias, roof terraces, a new river, a massive new park that they've just delivered in Mayfield. It's the first park in 100 years in Manchester. I think they got a £23 million grant from the government to do it and it's epic uh, and we get to build a, um, a, a store in this ground floor this build models falling to pieces <laughs> store in this ground floor where it, as a workplace it's more than just kind of efficient kind of floor plates it's actually there's a certain thing on the ground a thing we've called office plus so it's a sort of free-flowing program of other things which basically you know conjure and and nurture interaction and, and casual count encounters we now moved into a meeting room to sit down and talk about Joe's interest in uh, the interaction between architecture, cities and food. I think six or seven years ago now, I sort of turned vegan. Okay. And Ellie, you know, Ellie and I, my wife, is also an architect, um, trained, we both turned vegan at the same time. And, you know, that kind of took us on a journey. And, I, you know, it wasn't something that, it wasn't like, the intention wasn't to go on a journey. <laughs> the intention was to sort of go vegan and see if one can do it. And it took um, four or five weeks to sort of go through a kind of cold turkey mm. in many respects um, because of all the, you know, your macrobiotic kind of the makeup culture of your gut is only there because of what you put in. So if you're putting lots of dairy in and lots of meats and so forth, then, you know, your, your, your gut's expecting it. So when you go through that change, there's a sort of chemical balance um, and it really does send you a little bit kind of um, doolally, I suppose. <laughs> And then you sort of come out the other side and you feel liberated. And I think then, you know, you, then you crave kale and spinach and, <laughs> and all sorts of things, which is generally kind of what the diet is. And I think once we've gone, once we've gone through it, then you sort of go on a slight journey, start reading about it, start thinking about recipes, you know, kind of things you should be eating. And then before you know it, that kind of spectrum widens a bit and, and it kind of then definitely dovetails into how I think we're all thinking as architects, um, I suppose, in sort of shorthand, um, who are basically signing declarations for climate change. So we're all saying, you know, we're, de we're declaring there's a, there's a climate emergency, therefore we're going to invest in technologies which are to do with, you know, low-carbon concrete um, uh, specifications, you know, uh, standard steel sizes, um, reduced grid sizes, you know, uh, passive house um, standards, and at the end, at the weekend, I eat eggs, meat, fish and dairy... And a thing that's always gone through my mind is the kind of it just seems perverse to be to think about how many people are doing that. We're all trying to change things, and you know buildings take five to ten years for it to be constructed, and there are many thousands of people involved in a building. And if we're all trying to design a kind of low low impact building, but at the same time eating in a kind of high impact way, it's like well, you, we just all the work you're doing is just being undone. You're just doing it without realising it. So the sand, the sands of all your 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 effort are just dissipating. Mm -hmm. So you're at net, you're at net neutral somehow. Do you know what I mean? It's one building and many, many thousands of meals, mm. probably kind of adding up to something similar. You know, the carbon footprint of a box of Kellogg's cornflakes is actually quite big, sort yeah, of thing. Imagine, yeah. So, <clears throat> um, and obviously you've got people like Caroline Steele, who's um, talked about you know the, the the way in which cities have evolved over time through the movement of of, of um, uh, produce, whether it be live produce, you know, at the, you know, going back several hundred years, think of Smithfields where you're moving cattle and yeah. sheep into the city. That's all, you know, we all know about that. Through to, you know, the way that um, uh, boats and the, and the position of the Thames and how 
how abundant the kind of the Docklands was and the kind of centre of, of London for trade. So you think of all those sorts of streets where they're all named after some silk or some grain or some spice or, or bread or whatever. So they're, they're, they're integrated, aren't they? They're synonymous with one another. They are, they are uh, effectively, you know, how we grow food, how we feed the city, the evolution of the city and street patterns are kind of all in one and the same kind of yeah. thing. So next, <clears throat> and again, it's like in a very, very small way, Next door, and this is kind of trying to have that conversation about how do we bring how do we bring those two disciplines back together. So next door is a plant-based restaurant, um, but it's more than just that. In the same way that we're thinking about architecture, it's about zero waste. It's about local sourced produce. It's about seasonality. It's about the kind of the ethics of of employment and people. So how you know a bit like I guess architecture of old it has a kind of reputation for being toxic in terms of the culture bullying restaurant um, the restaurant industry is exactly the same so if we were over here talking B Corp and trying to change the way that people are looked after mentored and trained we're doing the same next door as well so effectively it's the same conversation across two different disciplines that discipline feeds this discipline this discipline um, feeds off that discipline uh, uh, as well in terms of you know thought processes and um, uh, the opportunity to kind of you know coagulate together um, the same story. I think all of that sort of that interface is so 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 critical. I think so. Yeah, we 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 see them as as being kind of you know really really interlinked. And I mm-hmm. think over time, you know, as I said, this this ground floor space will be a place where um, you know those two stories will become completely yeah. inter- intertwined and become one. It's really interesting because it's, <clears throat> it's, there is a big, I think tricky conversation about sort of personal responsibilities versus yeah. the kind of wider impact you can have through your work, through yeah. your career and that kind of thing. And I think it's really interesting to see all the sort of, I mean we all do this, we all go through these sort of mental gymnastics of yeah. things, like I have a friend who's vegan and also drives a Land Rover yeah. because he yeah. feels like, yeah. because he doesn't eat meat that's kind yeah. of okay. Yeah. And I think we all do stuff like that. Yeah. I mean I obviously am on this podcast, you know, every fortnight talking about sustainable design yeah. but I still eat meat and I still fly yeah. you know to go see family and friends and stuff like that yeah. so it's sort of like I think one thing is important is to say like it is important not to shame people and not to like feel like everyone has to be perfect because yeah. of course nobody is perfect yeah. Yeah. but at the same time like is there something about living your values that then influences your work well that's it I mean I think it's it, it does influence people and I think again absolutely we're not into shaming although I do you know, when, and we have to keep saying we, this is not about shaming people, yeah. but it genuinely does feel like we're in the midst of something really critical, and you know, radical change is necessary. And so, if your business as usual, then you know, it's just you're adding to the problem, yeah. and that's a, that's a fact. And the bigger the population, the expansion of pop, the population of all the cities in Western civilization and across the world now, where we're going to be, and the, the whole t- conversion to a Western diet. Mm. not a vegan diet but a western diet which is meat and dairy based it's, it's a massive problem yeah. and so it doesn't matter how many buildings you think you're going to make which are kind of low carbon we've got a bigger problem which is the exponential advancement of western lifestyle which is going to kill us all long and short I mean that's it put, put succinctly it's very yeah, succinctly that's the end of it so you know if you've got if you've got children if you're thinking about the future future generations and this idea that somehow we might be able to stave off a one on one and a half degree um, temperature increase is sort of fallacy it's too late and actually now what we've got to be thinking about is as much as possible stemming the flow um, and um, thinking about adaptive and resilient futures yeah. which is a different thing than actually designing as if we're going to be able to save it because we're not that said, you know, the whole thing about um, veganism, where we started, it was about sentience rather than environment. Mm, so yeah. the, ve- the vegan principle is a, is a, is a um, not to talk about it for too long, but the difference, you can still drink, drive a Land Rover and be vegan because veganism is about exploitation of animals, sort sure. of thing. Yeah. However, veganism teaches you a whole bunch of other things, and I think that's why you can't drive a Land Rover, you can't <laughs> eat meat, and you have to build in a certain way, you can't fly, you can't have a car... So all those things we've got rid of. So we don't take, we don't fly anymore. We've got, we did have a car. We got rid of that. We ride everywhere. If we're going to travel anywhere, we go by train, take the bike with us. Everything is much slower. Everything is more contemplative. Yeah. So if we're travelling between cities, you know, we did a little tour down to. We went to Copenhagen. We've got an, an office out in Copenhagen. So being local to the work is quite important, I think, yeah. as well in that whole keeping the kind of footprint light. 
you might go, we might go to Copenhagen once a year, so we get on a train and we spend our time going through the countryside, just see the countryside fizzing past, and you realise there is no nature. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's no nature in Western Europe. It's a sort of barren landscape. You know, we think of the UK as a sort of, um, you know, this sort of weird kind of romantic view of rolling countryside. It's a completely mechanised system. Yeah. There is, we are the most nature-depleted country in the entire world. There is no land mammal left that really yeah. kind of roams in it. So it's like it's destroyed. And I think so, and the only way to change it, again, I'm trying not to talk about veganism, if I'm honest, but I do think a plant-based... <laughs> I've, I've I'm trying to, but a, tr- a plant-based um, uh, culture allows for tr- vast tr- tracts of land to be rewilded. To, again, within a 15-year time span. So I'm sort of in that my headset that if I can influence people in a positive way, so we do it through this. If you, yeah. you know, we can show you that actually eating plants is pretty cool, and it's full of flavour, and you can you don't have to waste anything. And if you do, it goes back into compost. You know, we can create a circular system there, mm. and it's really tasty, and we have a lot of fun. That's not shaming. That's just influencing and showing that there positive is a yeah, yeah, positive. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. I think it's like it's a, a statistic that staggers me is that in if you look at the entire land use of Britain, yeah, about I think just under fifty percent is for uh, livestock grazing. Yeah. yeah, so that's like fifty percent of all the land. Yeah, like including all the cities, all the yeah. national parks, and everything. Fifty yeah. percent we yeah. use for yeah. that, and yeah. we export a lot of that yeah. meat and dairy. So like yeah. it's not even just to feed people exactly. locally. Yeah. So I think it's that thing. Once you start thinking about, even if you do still eat meat if, you, if you're not ethically, ethically you know, against that. I think there is a spatial dimension to this yeah. where you're like, well, if we want more nature, more wildlife, yeah. rewilding, yeah. Uh, if we want to be growing timber for the construction, yeah. actually, all these things, like we need land. Need land the yeah. thing that's taking all that up is, is raising livestock, yeah. largely for profit yeah. rather than yeah. as a means of subsistence. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, the, 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 again, just a sort of non, a non-stat stat, <laughs> but it's like the, to grow a similar amount of protein through plants or by um, uh, by, by, by animals mm. there's something I think it's like 70% more efficient or something like that it's like a massive degree of inefficiency to get your protein through uh, eating animals because you're effectively having to grow crops which you could eat from yeah. to feed a mammal which basically is the most inefficient carbon sorry inefficient protein uh, converter mm. as a machine do you know what I mean so it's sort of and you know whilst it's doing this there's gases and methane and they've got spoil in the land and yeah. it's erosive in the land and you know f- fertility's gone so I think it's a re- I do think it's a really big problem and um, these things don't exist in nature yeah, yeah. all of these they're all they're all kind of bred they're all kind of you know these sort of machines for, for us to eat off but um, anyway I'll, I'll try and stop going on my soapbox <laughs> at that point no no it is, it is very interesting I, I find it interesting to talk to people because I have my own perspective on these things, you know, and I, I, I don't necessarily have one viewpoint that I push forward, but yeah. I find it interesting to talk to people to get that because it is so nuanced and yeah. it's really, there's not really, and I think, <clears throat> I think one thing if I could criticise maybe some people who talk about veganism is maybe they oversimplify it and mm. they say, well, if we all became vegan, like that would solve all the, world pro- mm. all the world's problems. They're like, well, it might solve, you know, yeah. 20% of global emissions, yeah. but like we still have to deal with the construction industry yeah. and all, all yeah, those yeah, other stuff. So like, yeah. I think just, and also <clears throat> all the complexities of land use. Yeah. How people make a living from land, yeah. like it's so complicated. I think yeah. if we if we can just give it the due time and nuance yeah. that it deserves yeah. to talk about it, I think yeah. is, is yeah. we're better. I saw, I went to see um, oh, what's that film at the moment? It's um, the, the film about fashion. But anyway, it's uh, an expose of the the massive kind of carbon issues with mm-hmm. um, with with fashion. Yeah. It's really interesting how this designer um, was. This, 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 this lady and actually sorry the, the film was, was um, the, the footage was recorded in 2018 so actually when you, you watch this film and you realise you know we're five years later that the, the messaging in it is so it's like one of those wow this is like so offbeat right now this is so behind the, um, the kind of you know the curve already based on what we know mm. so she'd um, she decided that in terms of um, making clothes that she was still in this kind of linear economy mm-hmm. so her view was uh, and it just goes to shows you just how you it's like with the best intentions i think and i'm really happy for any viewers or whatever listeners to sort of c- convince me otherwise or to correct me 
But I think if you're, if you're thinking through a linear, linear economy, then the starting point is wrong. Yeah. And I don't believe that um, cotton growing could be viewed as regenerative or the wool industry could be viewed as regenerative at all. We know that the wool industry involves kind of, you know, again, back to a vegan discussion, but on an environmental level, it's a completely kind of hazardous, um, you know, rearing, rearing sheep is a, is, a, is, a, is a biohazard. And, um, you know, there's a whole thing about, you know, the ethics of just keeping animals um, for, for your own purposes. And ultimately, they go, in a, they go in a bin, they get turned into food at the end of the day. So it's like, there's a whole kind of murky thing over there about, you know, wool. Yeah. But the way they describe it in the film is it's a natural product. Mm. Well, it's used in an unnatural way. And it's like, you know, the, you haven't consulted the lamb to ask them with the interest in all this. Obviously, they can't speak, but I'm sure they wouldn't want to give. And, you know, they're already an aberration. They've been bred to kind of grow fleece in a particular way. So the whole thing is just like, well, it's not natural. It's a version of nature which has been kind of manipulated. And then cotton involves, you know, it's a, it's a monoculture, um, involves spraying, involves uh, people of, you know, uh, lesser uh, economies picking cotton. Yeah. So there's a whole kind of ethical position there. And ultimately what you're still doing is you're still making stuff yeah. that ultimately finds its way into, into a bin, into a landfill. And, the, and there was nothing in this entire programme about, which she said at the very beginning, about the mountains of waste products in the fashion industry, none of it being, consi- not considering it as a potential recycled commodity, which would be a really epic conversation, wouldn't it? So how do you, how do you take... And it's the same for construction. Where is the landfill? What is in the landfill? What can we do? What can we do to recycle it? How do we innovate? So, you know, the Ferrezzo next door is just, you know, it's a nice version of that. It's kind of a soft version. But, you know, reusing bricks, you know, reusing slabs of concrete, you know, keeping timber, repulping timber, all those sorts of things are really critical. And, you know, being, you know, being circular and, and celebrating the kind of, what's the word, the kind of, the, the, the lack of purity and control one might have over something... Allowing things just to be casual and things to collide is is way more exciting than than sort of going down this sort of fully machined in control sort of linear um, system. Yeah, I think that's great. I think there's you said <coughs> something there which I think is very a very important point to like reiterate is that thing of like if you start from the point of view of our industrialized you know society as it is now, like from a point of view of unsustainability you can't make that sustainable yeah. with the tweaks. Like yeah. And I yeah. noticed this in reporting <coughs> in places like the BBC and David Attenborough and nature yeah. documentaries. They always end up saying things like, um, uh, you know, like David Attenborough would say things like, oh, there's just too many of us on the planet. And, uh, you know, oh, in the Netherlands, they grow food in greenhouses and they use renewable energy and stuff like that. And yeah. it's always like, you know, I love David Attenborough. He's very, he's very well-meaning. And he's a great yeah. spokesperson for, for the environmental movement. But it's that thing of like, just not enough imagination yeah. goes into rethinking yeah. these systems. And yeah. the idea that we could actually be transformative, yeah. live in very different ways, yeah. is sort of not on the table in yeah. mainstream discussions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. there's a place... Um, so, so Ellie and I went on this sort of pilgrimage, um, as I say, to Copenhagen. Part of the pilgrimage was effectively a food-based one. So it's slow travel on a train. We went from uh, London to Cologne, from Cologne to Copenhagen, Copenhagen to Munich, and then Amsterdam, something like that. Really good, stopping in the city, just seeing it. Yeah. And the one that stood out is when we arrived in um, Amsterdam, there was a uh, restaurant that we wanted to see called Mediamatic, I think that's what they're called, um, and um, I'll, I'll double-check that name, but um, this, is a, this is a restaurant in which they're really being radical about how to grow and invest and innovate in plant and food technology. Mm-hmm. So it's a um, it's predominantly sort of plant-based, but there are other derivatives in there. Actually, sorry, no, the restaurant is vegan, but there are some practices in there which are not vegan. So, for example, they were purifying... What were they doing? They were, I think they were purifying water with catfish oh, in yeah. barrels... And the water was gradually moving from barrel to barrel, and the catfish are just in this. Thi- or, actually, or maybe, or maybe actually they're using it's like an aquaponic. Thing. Yes, it's an aquaponic yeah. thing. So this sort of thing was purification, and then they're using their um, their feces the and fertility. Yeah. yeah. So that's like, I mean, it's like really radical, highly problematic, but kind of these are the things that you need to. I guess you kind of need to explore them to understand 
the efficacy of these sorts of things, whether or not it's a sort of acceptable departure or not, yeah. I think. So these, these catfish are basically in a darkened room. Have you, have you been there? Have you seen it? So you, I've, you, seen, you've seen the sort I've seen of thing. a similar aquaponics system yeah. with, with fish, yeah. and it's this closed-loop system yeah. where, uh, obviously, yeah, as, as you just said, I think they, they get fed something, not sure, yeah. and then the feces fertilises the water yeah. which grows the plants, yeah. and it's like, this is how it works in nature, yeah. but in a very like, laboratory. Yeah, yeah in a laboratory, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> the other thing they had, they're, you know, they're really, this interesting thing about sort of mycelium and, and fungi and all yeah. that sort of stuff, and they were growing these... Um, I mean, really kind of odd, but kind of super cool that they were doing it. So as you walk in, you could smell mushrooms. And what they were doing is this constant process, this artist, and it's all about decay mm. and cycles of decay. And decay being a really important part of a kind of natural cycle because when, when things decay, nutrients kind of find their way back into the soil system. The soil is kind of, you know, enriched, things grow again. It's like constant. Yeah. So if you're removing things which decay, then the system dies and the soil erodes and sort of things. So again, we all know that. Yeah. And what they were doing, they were building these chimneys out of massive wedges of kind of mycelium, stacking them, stacking them. And then the ceiling, would, these things would constantly just be decaying into the ground, constantly. And another bit, another bit, they oh, keep growing it. And they were basically using um, pigeons to defecate on these things to kind of bring microbes and bacteria to this thing to create this decay. And it was like super to create fertilizer. Yeah. To kind of fertilise, to basically, so this kind of growth experiment yeah. and this kind of slow process of gradual decay using fungi, which is the most amazing thing, and then using that as a fertiliser to grow amazing plants which would then find their way in the restaurant. Yeah. Wow, that's so cool. You know, we all came away, you know, jaw-dropping a moment. And really interesting, we sat in these little greenhouse pods right on the harbour. So again, it was, I think they introduced, there was like three greenhouses, enough for two people. And I think they introduced them during kind of 2020, 2021, when COVID was rife and, you know, how are we going to feed people? You put them in little, little bubbles, see them on the harbour, but actually they've, they've kept them. So we sat, on this, we sat in this little greenhouse and we fed this multiple courses of just the most exquisite food, all plant-based, all grown on site, using either the catfish kind of fertiliser or this decaying um, pigeon mushroom thing um, with this as the light as the light descended with the kind of this the, the kind of the, the lake sort of lapping up against it it was just the most magical moment really really cold there was a candle in there to keep us warm and I guess it's just that whole idea that you know just the way that you can reconnect with the with these kind of these processes you can really elevate and if you take time you really kind of reinvest in the, or re-understand or understand the value of things so Fast food, fast TV, fast travel, you just disconnect it, you, you forget. You know, fast, fa fast fashion, fast construction, you lose all of it. If you can just work out how to slow the whole thing down to be a little bit more con contemplative, a bit more meditation and a bit more being in the space, a bit slowing things down, I think you start to realise, uh, you know, where, where things are possible. Think, thinking on that sort of higher level about, you know, what, what is possible, I suppose, for you, what... What do you feel like needs to change within the built environment, within the architecture profession, that whole industry? What would you like to see happening in the coming decades? Wow. That's a big um, question. <clears throat> that is a big question. Um, I mean, maybe, I mean, there's lots of different things. It's, it's whether or not, it, it, it doesn't quite sit on a kind of environmental thing, but I think things like just waste of time okay. and energy for people, I think, is a big one. So we spend inordinate amounts of time bidding on frameworks for projects uh, for speculative clients for little or no fee for little or no reward for a lack of recognition and respect um, it makes running a practice of architecture unless you're in a kind of ultra corporate mm. mindset really hard I mean it's, it's sort of it's a, it's a real battle um, I feel it more now than I probably ever have just how difficult just keeping the, the ship afloat is mm if you're meaningful, if you have a kind of social um, ambition and a planetary ambition yeah. to sort of change things, you have to do it in super small steps because there's no one out there wants to take wants to take the risk, hasn't got the kind of, you know, the, the financial um, kind of bravery, I guess, to kind of innovate and experiment. So it's like it's this whole idea of kind of sedimenting kind of change and kind of trying things and working out what did or didn't succeed and then trying it a little bit more, yeah. which is gradually pushing things along. So you end up with a massive time waste, 
with no innovation, nothing changing. And we know that, you know, when we signed the declaration for climate change 11 years ago, we had 11 years to change it, with five and six of them have gone. So, do you know what I mean? It's like, we've got, still got five, we've only got five years left before, you know, we're probably too late, if we're not already, and a project takes five years. Yeah. So we've got one project left. Every single person working in construction has got one project left to change it all, and there's no chance. Do you know what I mean? And that, I think that's, that's the really sad thing for me. Yeah. Um, I think a much, much greater em- emphasis on um, retrofitting and recycling and repurposing buildings should be the absolute, it should be completely mandated. So there is, it's a, um, you know, it's a predilection for refurbishing and retention and reuse rather than demolition. So the first thing is it has to be this. You have to have an extraordinarily sound reason, and then you're going to be taxed on it if you do. And then the section 106 and SIL all comes from you demolishing, yeah. unless it's a brownfield site already and it's empty. Um, then you know you have to demonstrate the kind of highest um, um, creden- uh, sustainable credentials, and they should be elevated all the time. Um, uh, I think structures in the industry, representation, um, you know, the kind of richness and diversity, I think is something which I've seen changing. Okay. Um, and something which we should be, I think, in the UK and London, I think we should be applauded for how that's evolving. Mm-hmm. I think it seems to me that there's uh, an increasing awareness and visibility of that. Um, certainly, certainly from where I'm looking, and I appreciate what I look like and what I represent is kind of a kind of an old guard, but um, that's kind of who I was born into. Um, I'm genuinely interested in helping, you know, fight for that change and being part of the change and trying wherever I can. To, to bring to bring difference, um, yeah. important difference to the to the business. So we're trying to we're still in the process of going through a kind of B Corp accreditation. We've been on it for a couple of years. Yeah. It's we're trying to do it slow and meaningful, such that actually by the time we go through the accreditation process, it's sort of everything that we're doing is fully adapted to those principles. Yeah. Um, and I appreciate actually, you know, there are lots of I think Lidl just went B Corp and oh, some really? you know some large organisations. It's like how are these in? Yeah. Um, but I think you know you're still it's still a kind of rigorous exercise okay. uh, to be B Corp. So I think that's a big, really big thing in the industry is to sort of change kind of your operational um, systems. Um, yeah, I think there are some you know big ones that I can see. Yeah. Well, okay. As a as a, as a final question, which is something I'm starting to ask um, all, all my guests. <coughs> I don't know if you're, are you familiar with Rob Hopkins, no. the founder of the Transition Towns Movement. He wrote a fantastic book on uh, the importance of the imagination in tackling these big societal problems that we have. Um, he was on the podcast a couple episodes ago. And he yep. said, he, he um, asks this question on his own podcast, which I've stolen from him, it's so good, <coughs> which is, um, projectors, imagine you're going in a time machine forward, we'll say to 2050, yep. and we'll say, imagine everything we talked about here has come true, and we've taken the steps necessary, and we've, we've, you know, we've done what we had to do to tackle climate change, tackle inequality, all these kind of things. Like, what does the world look like for you? What does success look like? And if you could, like, describe that for us. <laughs> wow. Because I think everyone maybe... Well, most people haven't thought about this. Yeah. And so, in a sense, we're always running away from a bad yeah. idea of what the future will be. Yeah. And what we want to be doing is running towards <clears throat> a good vision of what it should be. Yeah, so what do we think the future, the good version of future yeah. might look like? Uh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, it's also... It's almost... Gosh, it's... Maybe it's... Maybe it's quite a hard one to answer as well. That I, I guess, um, you know, what are we fighting for? Um, more, more. I think the whole kind of connection, I guess the, the big one here for me is just how do we reconnect with our role or our purpose within a natural cycle? I think for me it's just the overarching one. It's sort of, it feels to me like everything that we do is about our ownership and possession of kind of and a finite level of resources, um, be they kind of you know animal or material or mineral or whatever. It sort of feels like you know we we have created this culture, this system in which we have, we we believe we are we are the owners of all of this, and therefore yeah. there's nothing. It's very difficult to understand how to check that process. Um, so I guess in the future, you know, can, could one imagine a system in which we can find a way? You know the kind of the what's the bill? It's the kind of um, the, you know the, the um, what's the bill called? It's the the Bill of Human Rights or whatever, mm. which is quite an interesting. If you think about it, it's sort of it's the problem somehow that you know we all humans have a right to the following, mm. 
And it's like, well, what about the rest of it? You know, what rights does everything else have mm. if actually humans, humankind is the most important, or deemed to be the most important kind from our own self-perspective? So it's finding, it would be amazing, wouldn't it, if in 30 years' time, which I doubt, but let's just say it is, that somehow there's a new, um, a new charter which sort of describes that we are subservient to, at best, mm. or at most, say, or at least, or whatever, to kind of natural cycles. And that's, that becomes the more and more important thing. So, you know, you think about the, the new, um, that treaty that was written two days ago, which took 10 years about how we manage the oceans. And um, I don't know whether you saw that, but uh, what I hadn't realised is that, you know, we're 70% sea, and of the 70%, 1.2% of the sea, of the high seas, was protected. Wow. Which is like nothing. You know, and this treaty, which has taken 10 years, um, seeks to protect 30% of it, which is sizable. And what they're saying is really interesting, which I, it's one of those things where you've just got to keep wrapping your head around, is that, you know, we're landing people on other planets. So we've travelled to the moon, we're trying to get to Mars, there's all this other kind of out, and we've got telescopes and telescopes, you know, Hubble telescope and whatever, looking, looking super, super far away. And yet there are probably, there's an estimate of some millions of species of animals that live on the bottom of the seabed mm. that we haven't found yet, that will be dead before we get there because of the way that we look at, with the, we, the way that we view the, the, the natural resources and the planet. Yeah. It's destructive. You know, the, you know, the thing about the fashion, that fashion film, and I guess one of those things like, God, yeah, that's a real problem, isn't it? If you're buying polymer-based or, or um, man uh, fibres made from, you know, man-made um, technologies. Mm. Every time you wash your clothes, microplastics come off. So I didn't even think about. So, and microplastics are everywhere. So it's like the, it's every choice that you make. If you make, if it's not a natural material, and I guess this isn't, um, then you know every time you wash it, there's more, there's yeah. more stuff going in the ocean. There's more death. There's more disruption. There's more chemicals. There's more waste. There's more kind of you know natural disasters emerging. And I guess. How do we again? That's what I'm thinking. It's just everything. How do we turn everything back to a kind of natural source? Yeah. How do we kind of elevate the importance of nature over everything else? You know, can we exist within a system of degrowth and still prosper? I think if we would be a really interesting sort of sequence of conversations to have with um, some of your next podcasts. Fantastic! Thank you so much, Joe. Really Pleasure. Great. Excellent. Good.